Hi, welcome to the fifth episode of the Customer Support Podcast, and this is your host, Sandeep Jain. In this podcast, we invite thought leaders from customer support function from both B2B and B2C companies so that you can learn about challenges, opportunities around setting up a world-class support organization. Today's podcast is about B2B customer support, and our guest is Neer Gelpas. Neer has 20 plus years experience in the field of customer support that includes holding leadership positions at companies like Juniper Networks, Shortel, and Mitel. Currently, Neer is the Vice President of Technical Service and Support at BlueJeans Network. Now, BlueJeans Network is a private company that offers interactive, multi-directional video communication services through their cloud-based platform. They have raised $175 million and are based out of Mountain View, California. With this, I would like to extend a warm welcome to Neer. Thank you, Sandeep. Thank you very much for having me here. No, uh, glad that you could make it. So, Neer, you have been in support for last 20 years, and you have overseen support for both hardware and SaaS products. Can you highlight some of the biggest changes that you have seen in support since then? This is a very good question, Sandeep, and thank you for uh, asking it. Yeah, I certainly uh, see uh, major changes uh, driving the industry over the last few years. So if you look on the, the way that support was structured up until the era of uh, SaaS and services as software and all of those different companies, uh, support was a cost revenue uh, driven organization. Every company believed that they needed a support organization, but it was usually built in order to satisfy the need of either generating revenue or at least minimizing loss. As you move into more services world, the service is actually what you deliver. So customer service, customer support, customer success is the key essential of this world. And what really makes the difference here is the risk factor. If you take it back a few years ago, if a customer make a purchase, most of the risk is on the customer side. They need to put up front X amount of dollars and the vendor responsibility is to deliver the goods. In most cases, uh, the vendor will do their best job to deliver the goods, but even if they don't, this is where the customer support team will intervene and try to do their best to rectify the situation and fix it. However, again, from a financial perspective, the customer that already pay the entire amount to the vendor. Now, move this scenario a few years forward. Now you have a subscriptions-based model. The customer's spending no money upfront. All the infrastructure expenses, setting up the account, building up the account is on the vendor side. It takes X amount of months or years until the vendor get anything in return in regards to revenue. So unless you keep your customer very, very happy for that period of time, you are not going to make any money. So the risk factor moved from being almost completely on the customer side to be only and solely on the vendor side. And that makes the importance and the focus for customer-centric organization, uh, in my view, in my mind. That's interesting. Uh, what you're saying is the risk has now shifted from the customer to the vendor. Absolutely. Now the vendor needs to prove that they're worthy and it's worth the customer money throughout the renewal process. So the entire concept of renewal, which is either annual or monthly, will be determined based on your experience. If you deliver, 
there's a good chance the customer will renew. If you didn't deliver, the customer will not renew. Understood. But Nir, how does it make your job? So you're the leader of a support organization. Uh, how would you do things differently, given that this is, these are the, the cards that you're dealt with now? It's giving you uh, the opportunity to be front of center of the company. So while a lot of companies will admit and will say that they're customer-centric companies, that's not necessarily the truth. So in past companies, past life, uh, customer support was members of the of the team, but they not necessarily had equal ability to influence either roadmap by them, financial decisions, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a SaaS company, you get a much stronger voice to be able to influence. Because as I said, uh, what you're selling is a service. Everything is service. It's all connected together. You don't sell just a product. It's how this product is connected back and forth and, and the experience that this end user will get. So my ability as the leader to get things done in an appropriate way is uh, probably higher than it used to be before. And also the, the risk on my organization is much higher because uh, when you are losing a customer due to unsatisfied experience, it's all on you. So this is where you start seeing those terms of customer success and you start to you know, blur the lines between what is the customer success, customer support is really doing. Because in many ways now we are responsible for upsell, cross-sell. We're actually driving new revenue to the company. And if you don't do that, at least you minimize churn, which is another concept that doesn't exist in hardware software companies. And at least making sure that your base stays pretty much status quo and you don't leak any revenue through your base. So the, the focus on and technical support and, and support organization in general is so much higher and greater in, in this type of environment. The actual work, it's the same work. Something is not working, you need to fix it. <laughs> in an essence, didn't change. Mm-hmm. Just the focus and the risk reward you have around it. So one of the artifacts of this, uh, this shift of risk, as you said earlier, is the creation of this, this term or organization or people, group of people is customer success. In some companies Correct. that I've spoken with, this exists as a team within the sales organization and their job is mostly post-sales account management, and they'll get calmed on renewals. In some organizations, customer success is a separate team that sits under customer support. They are not calmed on renewals, but they are just their job is to meet the MBO or the goal of the customer doing the renewal. In yet another case, uh, you know, companies do not make a distinction, and customer support people do what is called customer success. Uh, do you have any sort of feedback on which is the right way to go for a startup? Well, uh, it's a very good question. It's really the, like almost anything else in life. It depends. <laughs> in, a, in a very early stage of your uh, life cycle of the company, it's very, it's very reasonable that one guy will do everything. Right? So you have one guy that will support, resell, post-sell, whatever it takes, he'll do it. But as the company is growing and, and getting into a curriculum mess, I am a true believer of uh, specifications and specialization. So the, the aspect of customer success is uh, slightly different than a traditional technical support. Uh, they require different tools and different skills, and they're coming to compensate on things that traditional technical support or customer care was just unable to provide. So in my view, the right way to go once you get into this critical mass is really separate between those roles and having a focused organization which is responsible on the remedial support, which is a combination of customer care and customer support, and then an overlapping organization, which is the customer success, who is responsible for the 
grooming and, and making sure that the account is healthy, making sure the account is in a good state, ideally growing and, and upselling within the base of the account, and absolutely guaranteeing that there will be a renewal, whether it's a monthly or yearly renewal. So in my view, it's a combination of these two teams working in tandem to make sure that you have an, uh, the outcome that you would like to have. Got it. And, and so, Neer, what is this? At, where are you at in BlueJeans Network with respect to how this customer success is structured? So here in BlueJeans, we have a, a chief customer officer who is uh, responsible for all aspects of uh, customer engagement. He is uh, working directly for our CEO, and under this uh, chief customer officer, we have two departments. One of them is the technical services, which I lead, and then I have my peer who runs a customer success organization. We have very clear swim lines, so each one of us know exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And we also know exactly how to work together to get the right outcome. And as I said earlier, we're all focusing on a little bit different directions, making sure that the outcome is the absolute outcome, which is really reducing churn and increasing uh, our ability to sell within our base. Got it. And, and we've talked about this quite a bit, but something that I was reminded, I'll, I'll just tell, I'll share with you. I was talking to the sales engineer at a SaaS company and what he told me, and this company has all the three departments, uh, like mm -hmm. customer success, customer support, and of course he's in sales. What he was sharing with me is the looks in the, when I make the sale, the customer knows me. And whenever they have any questions, even post sales, they tend to talk to me more than the customer success person. Uh, they'll definitely talk to customer support when something is broken, but if they have an advisory sort of thing, because I was the one who initiated the relationship, I act as a, as a point of contact. So uh, I guess what I'm asking is, do you see any sort of conflict between a sales engineer and a customer success role? Or do you think there are two separate swim lanes there? That's a good question. I, I can see how you can see conflicting uh, areas. And I think uh, this is probably true for almost any role. And that's why I said we have a very clear, distinguished between the roles and responsibilities. That's why I said we're all swimming in a very clear swim line. We know what we need to do and when we need to hand off. But I can clearly understand and relate to this particular SE saying, the customer knows me, the customer will contact me for any kind of advice. It really depends on the value you create. And if the customers do not believe that the customer success manager bring any value, they're probably gonna jump in and move into the next level, which will be either the SE, the account manager, or anybody else. But I've seen it the other way around where you have a trusted advisor as the customer says, and this guy can be the coordinator, the quarterback to get you what you need in a faster time. And frankly, release the SE to do what it really needs to do, which is going into new sales and increase your pipeline. Got it. And, and that reminds me of this, uh, this hunter versus farmer terminology that comes from sales. Exactly. SE right. is the hunter and your uh, customer success manager is the farmer here. <laughs> Absolutely. And in a fast world, farming is the most important thing. <laughs> the cost of acquisition is so much higher than the cost of retention. And that's the entire key for entire SaaS. If you want to, the 1,000 foot kind of overview of uh, why SaaS is so important and what's the value is really this difference between hunting and farming. We are back to our agrarian roots, right, Nina? now? Yes. Farming. <laughs> It all starts there. <laughs> um, 
So changing gears a little bit. Now let, let's talk about your organization. Uh, so when I talk to leaders, sometimes the support is either tiered, you know, there's level zero, one, two, or maybe they call it level one and two, or sometimes there's just one flat structure. Uh, could you tell us what is there in your organization and uh, is there a thought behind structuring it that way? Sure, absolutely. So uh, here in Blue Jeans, we, are, uh, we created a tiered organization, very traditional from that structure. We're going through transformation and changing as we grow. And uh, as I said earlier, I'm a true believer in uh, specializing. And I believe that you, know, you, you need to try to solve the problem uh, at the earliest, at the lowest cost. So like any organization, we have a lot of different type of issues coming to our center. So we're trying to make sure that we get the right person to address it at the first time without getting to too many levels. So we have the concept of customer care, tier one, tier two, we have a provisioning team we're creating, and we have some other specialized department, all in the concept of trying to get the right call into the right person as soon as we can in order to improve our first call resolution. Got it. And Near, there's different channels that customers use to contact companies these days. Sometimes it's chat, sometimes it's web, email, phone. What's sort of the 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 split in in your case? So we are a, a true omni-channel organization. We use uh, all all three uh, channel communications. We have voice support, uh, chat support, and web support. We are roughly about, I would say, about twenty percent voice. The rest is uh, equally kind of uh, handled between chat and web. So we're in a relatively healthy state. In general, I'm trying to reduce my voice interaction to the minimum. And we are in the migration right now to become much more an outbound call center rather than an inbound call center. The thought process here is to be ahead of the customer, being the one calling them rather than calling us. And then you take a lot of those historical KPIs out of the equation, average speed of answer and things like that become just irrelevant because you are as a vendor approaching them, calling them when it's convenient to them, rather the opposite. I see. So a couple of follow-up questions here. You did not mention email in your channels. Mm-hmm. Were you including that as web or, or there is no email support at all? So that is a really good question. It's a, it's, it's a struggle that I've been uh, in multiple startups across my uh, career. And like any normal company, BlueJeans started with uh, support at BlueJeans.com, which is a very typical way to interact. Right. As, as the company grow, I think it's the appropriate thing is to uh, decommission this form. As uh, we've proven, and I've proven this multiple times, that the mid-time to resolution on email cases will be typically two to three times, if not even more, slower than any other form of communication. So while it can seem to be very simple from a customer perspective, it's actually very inefficient way to get initial results. So we are not accepting any emails as a form of communication. With that being said, once a chat is created or most importantly, a web case is created, then emails are perfectly fine because they're all tracked and closed within our system. But you cannot create a brand new case by just sending an email to support at You said it was two or three times more inefficient if the, in, the case is initially opened through email. Is it because the email does not contain all the relevant information about what the problem is and a web interface forces the customer to do that? Or, or what's the reason behind the inefficiency? That's a very good question. There's a different and multiple reason. I'll start with the first one, as you mentioned. First, uh, email is an unstructured form. So 
what we were seeing, and, and this is coming from uh, multiple companies, someone just sent an email say, help, this and this doesn't <laughs> work. Well, that is not very helpful because I don't know who you are. I don't know which organization you, are, you belong to. I don't know what exactly your problem is. So the unstructured nature of emails, it's part of the problem. The second problem is the fact that this is not a real-time communication. You as a customer send an email, it goes to a queue, somebody pick it up, look into it, send you back a question. You're not necessarily going to be there to see it. You're going to reply in 10 hours later, and it's a back and forth and back and forth. I see. Unlike if you force them to go through a web case, now I get it. I, I see all the reasons why you call because it needs to be associated with an account. Now I can pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, Mr. Customer, this is what you're asking, right? Let's get it done right now. This is, again, changing the direction from being very reactive and waiting for the customer to respond rather than picking up the phone and calling them and getting the issue resolved faster. That's a, that's a very interesting response, Nir. I'll give you an example. So I develop apps as well on the side. And so one of the things on the apps, on the mobile apps that people do is, you know, there's a like, click here for the support. And mm -hmm. once you do that, an email creates, email is created, but there is a, a tar file or, or a zipped file okay. that mm -hmm. I do as an app developer, which collects all the necessary information that is required for me. So mm -hmm. this could possibly happen on SaaS products as well, assuming the email is being originated from the product and not from your Gmail. Correct. But this is once again, your, your I think a web interface probably. It sounds more like web interface rather than an email. Yes, it's more in-app or web, and that's something that we can definitely do, and we're actually working on a simple form. So we have the same concept on our mobile app. You can send a, a log file or anything like that, but that's going to go directly into our system. So as you said, I don't need to ask all of those questions. Fair. The biggest uh, amount of customers do not open up, uh, and I think that's where you differ maybe between a B2B to B2C. Mm -hmm. The B2B world, you'll, you'll see people just using their computer or phone and sending an email outside of the app that they're using. And that's very disruptive in case of, you know, you want to improve your MTTR or any, anything in that nature. Got it. In fact, I was asking this question with another, uh, to another person and, and their response was they have completely closed email, but for a very different reason. Uh, and his reason was, look, I want my customers to go through this self-service experience that they have created for mm -hmm. them on the web, which is probably automated answers. So, uh, it helps the customers eventually because they're getting a quicker answer and mm -hmm. uh, it helps the company because it reduces their case overload. But That's 100% true and it's the third part of the, the question is really to try to defer them into a self-serve portal, which we're currently building, to defer and deflect uh, many of those cases. And again, it's not necessarily for our purpose, it's to improve customer experience in today's world, modern world. Most customers would like to resolve their issues themselves. So if you direct them into the right avenue, there's a very good chance that we're able to solve the problem before they even contact you. So that's another very important point. So three major reasons why email is just not a very efficient way to resolve issues. Great, actually. And uh, another follow-up here. Do you see a role of chatbots in, in B2B support? I'm not talking about a live chat, but a chatbot. Mm-hmm. Do you see a role in customer support, especially in a B2B environment versus a B2C environment? Yes, absolutely. So we are actually working in, the, in that direction to introduce a chat bot. A live chat, absolutely, that's a very valid, uh, very good and, and uh, 
instant way to get relatively simple issues resolved. And again, I think it's important to kind of differentiate the type of issues you're trying to resolve. If you're trying to look and resolve a very complex, uh, I don't know, quality issue, which is not a deterministic problem, it's, you know, typical technical support issue, then I would say that I, I don't necessarily see a chatbot doing a really good job there. But on all the other things, which is more in the customer care world, uh, it's all of those questions and how do I do this? How do I do that? What is my billing means? Chatbot can do a tremendous and, and very effective work there. And that's uh, definitely the direction that we're going here. So do you have chatbots live in your support or is this something that you're experimenting with? Uh, we're beyond experimenting. We're, we're building it and uh, we're going to introduce it uh, probably by the end of this year. Oh, so you're building your own chatbots versus buying, buying the technology from other vendors? No, we are working with other vendors to implement that and add it to our uh, Salesforce infrastructure. Understood. Understood. On that note, Nir, could you tell us about your support tool stack? This is a question that I ask all my guests so that our audience understands what are the different technologies that the, the companies are using currently. So it's about what context center you're using, case management, search, which I get very different answers for, by the way, all the time, customer portal, knowledge management, and anything else that you can think of. Very good question. So uh, I'll, I'll, the answer will be relatively simple because we are consolidating almost everything we do around Salesforce. So our CRM tool is Salesforce. Our customer portal is based on Salesforce. Our knowledge base is recently moved from uh, Drupal into Salesforce, so it's all embedded there. Our next step will be a community based on Salesforce, and that's encompassed, you know, omnichannel support. So chat, chatbot. Uh, and web form, web cases, knowledge base, all of that is within the Salesforce service cloud solution. The only other avenue which is not consolidated right now, it's our voice communication, which we're using right now, Ring Central. But as I said earlier, this is a relatively low volume uh, compared to what we do. And our goal is really going out of this business of an inbound call center where contact center is an effective tool. And really moving out into an outbound call center, which will then takes the entire reason uh, for a good contact center tool out of the equation. To be honest, Neer, I'm hearing the outbound call center thing for the first time versus an inbound, though when you're saying it, it kind of makes sense. But are you saying that if a company is now uh, shifting towards an outbound call sort of thinking, would they need a different technology from a contact center perspective or can can they reuse their inbound call technology, whether it's Ring Central or somebody else? So let me uh, let me elaborate a little bit more about that. So the, the experience I think we would like to create, if you think about it, is a very similar to an Amazon experience, which is kind of the first name that's stand in line when you think about quality. When you have a dispute with Amazon or any kind of question, it's really hard to find a phone number. <laughs> so let me be specific. There is no phone number. You're going to go through their self-service system. They're going to try to resolve your problem automatically. But in the case that you are unable to resolve it, they'll give you the option. Are you want to chat? Do you want to open up a, a web case? Or you want to talk to us right now? If you would like to talk to them, there's no phone number. Again, you're going to click a button. That's going to force them to call you. And there is an, actually an option to schedule the time where you want to have the call. So from a tooling perspective, that might require either tweaking, depends on what you're using on your back end. Or you may reuse it. Um, I, I don't have the answer for that because there's many multiple different kind of uh, contact center tools out there. 
interesting enough, I just, you know, spent four years in a company that that's what they do for a living. <laughs> but I, I, I do believe that a lot of this concept will just going to go away. Because when you, the, the main purpose of contact center solution usually were to either create queue-based ability to route calls to the appropriate resources. Right. And when you are the one generating the calls, now you're becoming a much more like a telemarketing organization. You know who you're calling, right? So you can ideally route these calls to the right people from the first go. You're not expected to analyze very quickly who this caller is, why are you calling him and where to go. You know, when you call me, you know you're calling near. You know exactly who is the right person to call near. So you can offer this call very simply to the right queue. So a lot of those decision trees that were kind of the complexity of the contact center just doesn't exist when it's outbound. So whether you use the tool or you reuse them, that's a different question. I don't know the answer. But I think that the, the need completely for those complex, huge buildings of hundreds of people that's answering the phone will go into a different world. I, I would like to see the future coming to be an exception center, not a contact center. And what does that mean? It means that anything which is not an exception should be resolved by other means, either by yourself, ideally, or by any other electronic tool. If it's an exception, meaning you've tried something, it failed, it's broken, now you need to call, and ideally this vendor will call you rather you spending your time waiting on hold and calling them. Does that make sense? Neil, I just love the way you described this. Uh, honestly, I was not getting the outbound call versus inbound call, though I've went through that experience a few times myself. But one thing that struck in, in your reply was, now the vendor has a chance to know a lot about you before they give a call to you. So you have, you have sort of saved all the time of the customer, actually, because you are doing work at your own end. And you save my time. So that's as a customer. This is a very simple thing, but I was kind of missing that. How many, how many times you called any kind of service just to be asked the same question again and again? What's your account <laughs> number? What's your ID number? Where my point, let's take this out of the equation. I love this. If you, if you put your stuff into our system, I know who you are. I don't need to ask you any question. I, I, I love can this. Just, I can just verify that that's who you are by you know, just asking, hey, give me some identification code just from a so compliant or other things, but that's where it is. It's simple. But tell me this thing, uh, and maybe this, the world is not black and white, and maybe I'm trying to paint it that way, so that's an unfair question. But where I was going with this is in B2B, uh, where your customer, let's say, has an ACV or annual contract value of, I don't know, $500,000 or $100,000. Would they demand that, hey, I need to talk to a person, even if I just want to know what my login ID is? Would, would people want to just talk to a person just because they're paying you a lot? So we, we see that, and that's a very good question. And I think the answer for that will be, again, depends, right? That's not, it's not a black and white. There, there, there'll be some gray areas where there's some other very specific type of uh, verticals or very specific organization that they still require this, what they call white glove service. Uh, but I think for the generic B2B business, for non-critical issues, meaning it's a not 911 kind of critical situation. Mm -hmm. Most organizations prefer their user to solve their problem themselves. And if you look on big enterprises, that's exactly how they treat their own users. So if you look on any, any large enterprise in the Bay Area or anywhere else, they have a concept of help desk to support their employees. It's done the same way. 
they're not promoting people to call in, they're promoting people to go through their systems, opening up a case or going through their different tutorials or any other knowledge base before they pick up the phone and call. It's kind of percolating through any, any part of our life. It's just a transformation. It's going to take some time and there's always going to be a need for things that you just need to pick up the phone and call and that, that's fine. Right. And coming back to your point about Salesforce, you're migrating everything to Salesforce Service Cloud. Are there any sort of apps within their app exchange that you're using or is it just a native Service Cloud? It is native, but there's also a lot of other things that we are kind of working with. Uh, there's different things from a translation perspective and a company that's called Language.io that we're kind of working with right now. There's different type of uh, ecosystem companies that kind of tab in into, into Salesforce. Periscope from reporting perspective, there, there's a lot of that that goes in it. And it's a part of the beauty of Salesforce. It's the, the entire ecosystem around it. Got it. On that note, do you think that customers should have a mobile interface for support, like a mobile app? Well, we discussed email is not a good thing, but or web and chat are the best ways. No, I think that support depends again on your business. Support app might be a, a good thing for you. Uh, in previous life, I created one of those when we had a telephony services and it was very useful. And I think the combination of just embedding the support part in your own company's app, that's probably the better way to go. Meaning you can just do it from the same app. Let's assume you're selling video conferencing like ours. Mm -hmm. So from that app that you use, you'll be able to either open up a case track your case, see the status of our cloud service and all of those things. It's, you all need to come from the same source. Ideally, you don't want to have people moving between different applications. I see. So are you saying with BlueJeans, the, the support workflows are embedded within the product itself, like it's in product support? Part, part of it, yes. Part of it will come in a later time. So it's part of the work that we're doing right now is to include more of the support aspects into the into the app itself. Understood. And do you see any big gaps in the technology provided by the vendors that you use currently in support, which in your case would be Salesforce, I guess? Not necessarily. And frankly, when Salesforce do see a gap, they just either go and acquire it or just do it. <laughs> um, so I don't see a big gap there. It's usually going to be just a cost-driven uh, discussion whether you can afford it or not. They're a good partner to work with, and um, they're relatively quick to catch up on other ideas. Uh, if you go out to Dreamforce, you'll see the, the length and the breadth of the, the company and their ability to attract very strong players to play with them. It's a, it's a good ecosystem to be with. Got it. And is there any sort of machine learning you know, these are the new buzzwords, what I hear about support leaders saying we want to make our support proactive instead of reactive. And mm -hmm. if you the layers of onion, what that means is you look at the customer data that they're sending you because you're a SaaS company and then using, I don't know, Elasticsearch, machine learning, pattern matching, AI, pick your tool of choice. But the idea is to predict what the problem customer could have before they give a call into you. So do, do you see any sort of... Uh, of that with blue jeans or or in general yes so uh, it's really hard to have a conversation these days without using <laughs> uh, like ai and, and uh, 
NLP and all of those things. But I think it's uh, it's beyond the point of uh, a buzzword at this point. As you said, in the SaaS world, we have a lot of data, and uh, and in specifically in Blue Jeans, the the way we developed and created the the service has tons of uh, intelligent information that is being collected by multiple devices. And now the key thing is really kind of go through this uh, massive data and figure out what's going on. So as a company, we're investing a lot in data science and we have a data science team that work to create uh, different views to our customers. One of our differentiator is uh, something we call a command center that gives the user a very, very detailed view on how things are going in their uh, um, enterprise. But in parallel for that, uh, my organization, we're looking into different ways how we can really build some account help checks that will give us a good telemetry about how is the account behaving, not just from a, a support case, a ticketing system, but also from any other elements of consumption and usage of our system. So to make a long story short, we're definitely investing in uh, artificial intelligence, we're working with our own data analysis team and we're also collaborating with some external resources to develop our own internal tools to be able to get to this situation where we're a little bit more proactive rather than just a very traditional reactive organization of break fix. We're trying to get to a point it doesn't break. Fair. Shifting gears a little bit here, Nir. Could you share, like one of the things that I've heard from my guests is uh, concerns around attrition and support because uh, sometimes the job is repetitive and then agents don't like that and they leave and then hiring and training support agent, it's pretty costly. So could, could you share or could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think attrition is a, is a very important matrix and, uh, and point for uh, almost any organization. It's uh, probably true in technical support. It's true in... Uh, in engineering development and specifically here in the Bay Area where there's a very fierce competition on good resources, hard to keep your um, employees in Bay. I think there's different different ways to address it. There's no absolute answer and there's not always, uh, you know, there's no magic number. I think we're able to keep our attrition or our negative attrition into a good place. And a lot of this is really by hiring people in the right places where you can be successful. So technical support is, um, you can have them in the Bay, you can have them some other places. And our strategy has been to have people that we really need in our headquarter being here, but a lot of other folks in other locations where the competition is a little bit different and you can get a very skilled, good engineers for a much more reasonable price. And then you have an ability to play with their salary and other things, which is uh, very limited in the Bay Area. So again, long story short, I think it's a concern, but there's different ways to address it. Not to an absolute point, but uh, you can manage it into a reasonable way. It's typically a problem of your lower tiers, which we are just, you know, putting them in a place where we have as advantages as, as an employer, attract good talent, and if we need to refresh them and take them in and out through the system, the cost and the impact is not as big as it's, uh, you know, if it's happened on your tier two or tier three engineers. Got it. And Nir, what are the metrics that are important for you and what, what do you keep track of in your own organization? So I think I alluded to some of that already throughout kind of the conversation. I, I would say that the ultimate goal for us is a combination of customer satisfaction and NPS and net promoter score. This is kind of the, one of the most important things that we measure. But in addition to that, we're also tracking some of the regular time-based metrics like meet time to resolution, first call resolution, 
And last but not least, it's uh, the costs, right? We want to make sure that we're delivering a very good experience with a reasonable cost. So we want to make sure that uh, while our efficiency and the numbers are all going up, our cost is you know, within uh, a good check. So the combination and the cost, cost of good here uh, is another element. So looking at all of those things together, you look at the quality, you look on the time, and I think the outcome will be a very, uh, it's, it's giving you a good pulse on what's going on. Got it. And Neil, could you share maybe one or two things that you did to improve the scores in either of these, like you talked about NPS, MTTR, first call resolution. Are there some insights that you can share with the audience where, well, look, we were not good there, but we did a couple of things and, and it, it helped us take into a better direction? Sure. So again, I, I don't want to steal the thunders from everybody else, but I think there's a couple of things that usually works. And the, the easiest and the long-hanging fruit is really affect your time-based metrics because they directly affect your customer satisfaction. The faster you get issues resolved, the better your customer satisfaction is. That's been uh, repeatedly proven in every organization I work. So any way you can reduce the time to resolution will affect your ability to increase your NPS and increase your customer satisfaction. So with the, the ability and the tools that I've mentioned earlier, less emails, much more electronic forms, you by far are going to improve your time to resolution. Then a big focus with your first tier organization on first call or first contact resolution, trying to get involved and drive towards the customer, don't hide away. Meaning when a customer is opening up the case, don't use your SLAs and try to hide and say, hey, I have six hours or eight hours to wait. Get into it right now. The customer is there, he's willing to engage. Take this opportunity, pick up the phone if needed, call them, get the issue resolved. The fastest you get, the better you are. Does that answer your question? No, absolutely. And I, I think what I'm hearing is, well, if you resolve that, that time to, to resolve thing, then other metrics like NPS score, they will follow, like they'll go upwards. And uh, yeah. the interesting thing, which, which I had heard for the first time, by the way, was to take out email completely just because that channel doesn't give you information and it's not real time. So that was something unique, at least I learned. <laughs> well, we're learning every day. And uh, let me just be clear, NPS is a very broad term that define your satisfaction from a brand. So support experience is a, is a part of it. And if the support experience is a differentiator, and it's great, there's a good chance your NPS will go up. If the product doesn't do what it needs to do, then you know, the support experience can be great, but it still doesn't compensate for the fact that the product doesn't do what it needs to do. So NPS is a very broad kind of uh, measurement. I think the improvement I've mentioned will improve directly your customer satisfaction score when it's measured on the transactional survey, mm -hmm. which ideally will create a better NPS uh, at the overall and, and get there. Fair. And Neil, what are the, some of the biggest challenges in your organization today? Or, or in the in support in general. I know you talked about earlier the the transfer of risk. I would say that's the biggest challenge for a leader in support in a SaaS company. But are there any sort of tactical challenges that you deal with? Anything that you can sort of share with the audience? I think the challenges are very. Uh, I would connect them into the three kind of pillars that everybody talks about. It's uh, around people. It's products, it's tools, right? 
you have people challenge, people that are not willing or capable changing in the pace of a SaaS company. So if historically company were developing in a waterfall uh, form, now it's uh, all agile and now there's super agile. So super sprints and things are coming in on a weekly and daily basis. So things are happening much faster and it requires a lot of changes. So people, not all of them are built for that, not always gonna sign up for that. And that's gonna be our first challenge. Processes, as a startup, as a small company, or even as a mid-sized company, if the company is growing, you need to change. You can't just keep up the same process and say, hey, this thing was working for us five years ago, that's probably gonna work for us tomorrow. So keep updating your processes and making sure that you have the right process in place. That's a challenge. And uh, last but not least, tools. How do you take advantage of all of those great innovation out there? How do you keep yourself up front with innovation and making sure you use the right tools. Uh, and, and other places, how do you make sure you use just the tools that you need and not using all the breadth of 15 other tools that you don't need? So I think the challenges, and uh, I know that it's a, a probably a cliche, it's really around those three pillars of people, processes, and, and the tools. So the, a follow-up question on this, Nir. You mentioned about Agile and Super Agile. When the code is being is changed or new features are being introduced on a, on a weekly, daily basis versus in a waterfall model earlier where features were, you know, there's a monthly or a quarterly frequency, how do support people keep track of learning new things while also solving the things that are, they are required to do on a daily basis? That's uh, part of the challenge. That's really part of the challenge. How do you create a modern... NPI process, right? An NPI, new product introduction that was very well suited into the waterfall world with the quarterly releases just doesn't fit anymore because it needs to happen much faster. So adjusting to a much more rapid pace NPI will help you to keep your support team and more importantly, the customer experience up to date. If you don't do it right and you release products that are either cannot be supported or premature, then you'll suffer later on on the back end. And that's some part of this uh, evolution that we need to figure out a different processes to keep up. And we're going through this go-to-market changes uh, as we speak. It's, it's, a, it's a very big challenge for uh, traditional companies to do that. And it's something that small companies will need to figure out how to do better because it's one challenge when you have 20 people to control and it's a very different challenge when you have 500 or 1,000. So it is a real challenge to control between your time to market, which you wanna be quick, into your quality, which is what the people in support is responsible for. It's a, it's a fine balance. So what is happening today though? Like, are you guys, is your team inserted every time the development pushes a feature out for the customers to use? Yes. Wow. So, that, so that means there's a, there's a lot of training or a, or a frequent level of training that's happening. Correct. And I guess we there's- very no close very close with the product team organization. There's a specific person out there that's responsible for product releases and making sure that we are trained, we are on top of it. We're building the right relationship with the right external teams and internal team because some of the work we do is with partners and uh, third parties. So there's a lot of work getting into it to get products out there. And I'll be right, I'll be very open. I know it's not always perfect, but we, we are trying to get as much as we can. And that's, again, exactly where what I was focusing on, this three-prone approach of people, having the right people that can adjust the right processes in place and the tools to, to do that work. 
well, this uh, just talking about it sounds like a like a difficult job because there's a fire hose of the the new things being released, and then there is customers who are talking about their cases that need to be fixed. Sounds like a hard job. It's a hard job, but it's a very fun job. <laughs> if you like the excitement, if you like the challenges, uh, and you like to be on the front line, that's the best way, the best job you can find. In, in fact, that reminds me, one of my previous guests, he, he shifted from engineering to support. And, and his one of the, the main reasons was that with support, every case is new and he gets the thrill of, of doing something or completing something, which was not there in engineering as much. So Yeah, there's a lot of uh, quick satisfaction here when you help somebody and you see the smile on their face. And specifically in a technology like BlueJeans where you can actually see them. Uh, it's a lot of joy and it's a, a very, very rewarding, but it's a lot of hard work. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and Nir, what would be your advice to CEOs or any support leaders who would be listening to the podcast and they may, be, they may have just started a company or it may be a late stage uh, startup or even a public company and, and they are thinking, well, look, I need my support to be seen as a differentiator rather than as run of the mill. I know you talked about quite a few things earlier about like shutting off email and then doing that outbound call thing, which I thought was very, very interesting. Are there any other things that come to your mind? I think my biggest advice to CEOs, it's really understanding what customer centrics mean. What is a, a differentiator means to you, to your business, because for every business, it's going to be a little bit different and really realize that support is no longer just a, a cost center. Uh, when I work with organization, when they asking me, hey, what's your P&L? Um, and you tell them, hey, there's no P&L. We're just part of the cost of the product. And they kind of uh, raising their eyebrows and saying, I don't understand it. That's a, that's a red sign for me. Uh, the support is an embedded part of the product. And once you start thinking that way, a lot of good things going to happen. So I don't want to specify one magic bullet because I don't think there is one. It's just a concept and understanding from the CEO down that services in general, customer success, customer support, and everything that go with it, it's not an afterthought. In many, many traditional organizations, that's the, the organization that come last for a good reason, because you need to drive uh, revenue through sales and you need to drive development through engineering. And there is somebody else to just make sure that everything works fine. As I mentioned earlier, the risk factor shifted drastically. and this paradigm just doesn't work anymore. So for a smart CEO, I would say just realize that the services organization is equal importance in this type of uh, SaaS world. There's just not one part which is more important than the other. It's really keeping the balance between your upfront sales efforts and booking to your churn. The sales organization, a lot of the product organization is focusing on booking. And then you have equally important organization that is responsible for reducing churn. If you have this out of balance, you're not going to be successful. I see. And actually a related point there. In the hardware case, companies used to charge separately for, for the product and support. In, mm -hmm. in the SaaS case, I've seen companies sometimes uh, sort of merging the two, like the product subscription and support subscription in one number. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is separate. Do you have any view on this? separation of revenues, I should say, on a SaaS, for a SaaS company? Sure, so uh, I think it all goes back again to uh, 
your uh, roots and how you got to where you are. What you'll find out in my experience is that those companies that are traditional hardware software companies that are doing migration are still trying to charge for services and support. However, companies that are true subscription-based, the basic support or most base, most level of support will be just embedded into the product because they're realizing that for them to be profitable, they need to keep you happy for a long time. And without embedding the support there, there's just no way that you're going to be happy. And then what's going to happen? You're going to move to someone else. So realizing there's always an option for someone to leave your company to a competitor just because they're not happy. That's, that's the key thing that needs to be in their mind. On top of that, I think it's okay for a SaaS company to charge for some white glove services. If you really want to do something above and beyond a really good support, that's okay. And you can probably charge that. But I think the basic part just needs to be part of the package. A lot of the things that used to be right in the hardware world just doesn't apply here. <laughs> RMAs, which is a huge cost, doesn't apply here. It's all remote support, on-site. All of those things that were part of the different... Uh, menus of uh, services organizations, this excuse doesn't apply anymore. It's all remote. There's no cost. It's only software. Charging for all of these things, I think, will keep you out of the game. Well, on this note, I think we have come to the end of this very, very fascinating conversation, uh, Nir. And, but before we let you go, could you share your favorite business book? That's something, once again, I ask all of my guests. That's a, that's a very good question because there's a lot of them uh, that I like <laughs> very much. But I think the one that make uh, the biggest impact on me, and it's a business book or philosophical book, uh, it's really the, the seven habits for successful people. And then there's a f- follow-up of uh, seven habits for managers and so on and so on by uh, Stephen Covey. Uh, very powerful when you embrace the concept and you realize kind of how you prioritize and how you conduct your life business and professionally, and of course, personally. I, I really enjoy that and I, I use it as a, as a part of my career kind of to educate and coach other people that I work with. Awesome. Nir, once again, thank you so much for your time today. And it was just such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Sandeep, for inviting me. Thank you very much.